0: Hello everyone and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're joined today by Fidelity Director of Research and Portfolio Manager Joe Overdevest for a look at the Canadian market across sectors and how rising rates could impact the markets this year. Speaking of rates, we look ahead to the next Federal Reserve interest rate decision on February 1st and wonder what moves are next. Central bankers from around the world are gathered in Sweden this week to discuss the health of the global economy, including a focus on climate change and the green transition. Investors are also pondering what big themes to look out for in 2023, which Joe unpacks today with host Brian Borsikowski. Joe also shares his thoughts on where he sees energy going this year, housing and mortgages, earnings expectations for 2023, and also details some conferences the Fidelity portfolio managers and research analysts have been attending lately. Today's podcast was recorded on January 10th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Joe, thanks
2: for being here. Thanks, Brian. Excited to be here.
1: So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's been uh, not a bad start to the year so far in markets. Uh, it's small sample size, but the U.S.-Canadian markets are up a little bit. Um, what is your outlook for 2023? What are you expecting to, to see right now?
2: I think what we had last year is, first of all, context with setting up this year. Last year was all about interest rates, right? You know, that the amount we're going to increase was the debate throughout last year. And now we're at the point where we're not really debating the increases. We're near the end, right? And that's the hope. And now the real debate, and I think sometimes we look at this at Fidelity, what's front page news and what's page 16? I think maybe page 16 should probably maybe move up a little bit in the newspapers that how long do these interest rates stay high? And I think this is the, the debate when you see the markets. The markets are pricing in. We're going to go a little bit near where we are here, but we're going to cut soon. And I think just for all investors, we have to understand that, you know, what probability of that actually happening versus the expectations. And, and that could be where the, the big debate is as this year goes along. And the analogy I would say to the audience is that last year, if you're driving your kids to Disneyland, they would say, Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And now you can tell them, you're probably within about an hour of Disney's, so They're getting a little excited. And then you get them out of the car and they go, okay, I want to go on Space Mountain. I want to eat chocolate. And you're like, you're going to eat carrots or we're going on the teacups. And they're like, well, that's not fun. And we have to understand that we've gone through a, a good time where financial conditions were very accommodating, very low rates, quantitative easing. We might not have that benefit as much going forward. And so... Yes, we can cheer that we're here. We can cheer that rates are probably not significantly going higher, but also they might stay longer at a higher level than we're maybe used to in the past. And And that includes this, it will include headwinds for the consumer, includes headwinds for the market. And it probably leads to a gyrating market that, you know, at the top end, as soon as everything, everyone gets excited, the Fed will probably, you know, make us pause and say, you know what, we're keeping rates high or even moving rates higher than you think. And also with a gyrating market near the bottom, what helps us a little bit, we've had a tougher market in the last probably, you know, six months, 12 months in particular. So a lot, some of this is already priced in, but you know, again, we're just not used to this, but sometimes it could be a, a seesaw market until we find that equilibrium. I like the Disney analogy.
1: It makes me want to go back on vacation, but uh, I guess not, not for a little <laughs> maybe while.
2: Maybe no carrots, but yeah, we'd love to eat yeah. the
1: chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, just on interest rates. I, I mean, I think you're right. I think people are sort of anticipating things slowing down, but then you see last week, Canadian job numbers, 104,000 jobs added. It's always good you, you know, And, and instinctively you sort of want to say, great, good to see jobs, but then you sort of feel like, ah, maybe we're not at the end of this. Um, why are jobs still growing? And what is the impact of that on that, maybe on that January 25th rate announcement?
2: I think that's what's amazing about the markets. It's very dynamic. You know, you have a lot of behavioral, almost economics here going on. It's just not just Excel sheets. Because naturally, you would say, like, why are we not in a a looser job market at this point in time? And I think there's some qualitative things that have happened. There's a large part of the population in the older segment and in the younger segment that have left the job market. The younger segment will be interesting if they come back because, you know, where they are in their lifespan, they probably should come back for their benefit and particularly the parent's benefit to get out of the house. But, you know, there's a stickiness there that you can just see that the participation rate is not where it should be. So that's part of why it's sticky. Number two is also just sticky in that, you know, again, we forget, but, you know, CEOs and CFOs are men and women that go to work and they're human beings. They have emotions too. And they were scared the last few years to find people. So just to tell them, oh yeah, you should lay off a whole bunch of people or not add people. They're still airing on the side for some sectors you're seeing in tech, though, and even some U.S. investment banks recently are, are cutting. But for the most part, people still erring on the side like, we maybe might want to keep more workers than less just because I had that, that recent bias of that fear that happened the last few years. And I think this is one of the toughest things maybe we'll get into with, with inflation is that, you know, we have to understand that it's not um, one for one. So if we move inflation or the, the Federal Reserve or Bank of does from eight to four, well, four to two, eight to four might be easier than four to two. And this is what the toughest thing where the equilibrium will be is that what we talk about different inflation, we'll talk about goods, we'll talk about labor, we'll talk about commodity, I'm sure we'll get into that, but you brought up labor, labor's the sticky one, right? Because the other thing about labor is that, are you gonna tell someone who got a job you know, increase or pay increase last few years, you're taking their money away? No. Right, So there's a stickiness to that labor part of inflation and that's where it's probably going to be the toughest is that we will cheer, the market will cheer inflation going down, but if also we just start seeing, well, it should automatically go from four to two just as easily, that might be the tougher part and that's where the heavy lifting will be about the longevity of that terminal rate.
1: Let's, let's move on to inflation and, and we're moving into kind of a time where you're starting to get the year over year now from last year was year over year from these big numbers, you know, where from a from a lower inflationary time to a higher one. Um, can inflation continue to rise by six, eight percent? I mean, what are your sort of expectations for this year?
2: We look at inflation as probably three big buckets. Number one is goods and probably goods. Are, the biggest thing was probably actually supply chains of delivering the goods itself. But let's say goods. Let's say commodities and let's say labor. OK, on the good side, there's already a lot of good news with there. And in hard goods, the prices are coming down. Right. And you're seeing that with the consumers reporting that, you know, we're actually having sales the last few years. You would talk to consumer discretionary companies like the Ritzy's of the world, the Lululemon's the world, They're like we're not having sales. Like we actually eliminated sales because we can't get inventory. Right. With supply chains, we're too tight. That was not normal. And so now you're actually seeing probably on Black Friday and you're actually seeing on, uh, you know, Boxing Day, wow, there's actually sales. This is a new phenomenon. That's actually just the old way of going about things. So that is good. Supply chains are easing. With the commodity in the middle one, this is the interesting one is that again, I'm sure we'll dive into this with questions is that, you know, commodities, if you look at the outlook, we just met with all the, the global CEOs of energy companies last week at a big conference. if if commodities come down, it's not going to be supply uh, driven. What I mean by that is like, this is not normal. Again, we still keep talking to energy companies. If you've heard me say this last year, at least, it's a boring time right now to be a commodity CEO or energy CEO. They're not really adding any supply. They're not adding any capital expenditures, very little expiration for a number of reasons. And so normally when you see commodity prices where we are, you would see a supply response. You are not seeing it. OK, so if commodities do come off, it will be demand driven. China, which, again, I'm sure we'll talk about, you got a billion people opening up. There'll definitely be, you know, puts and starts there. Like, the, as we all see in the news, and I'm sure there's more we're not seeing. There's a lot going on there that, you know, it is very tough on a human uh, toll basis. And there's going to be, you know, not a clean run right from the start, but still a billion people opening up over time. Is definitely a positive driver of global G- global GDP, in particular commodities. But I think the concern for commodities is that if we do go into some kind of recession, it will bring down all goods, uh, not just commodities. But right now, the commodity outlook is probably a little bit more stable on the margin, with the positive being China. Last one is the labor, which we already discussed. That one probably is a little more stickier. So again, we should you know the, the, we should start seeing just the year-over-year comps getting better for inflation. But it'll be the last kind of 200 basis points, and this is the interesting thing too. If you really want to get the the market debate, the the Fed in particular has a dual mandate: jobs and inflation. You get the four percent, and then all of a sudden you have to go four to two, which is what they want to do. But all of a sudden the job market doesn't do well, and also of a unemployment, which we've been you know very blessed with a great employment market on on especially North America changes, and they had to make tough decisions. What is more important, jobs or inflation? And if, if again, because the audience will probably ask this, if you all of a sudden pause and say jobs are more important and you, 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 you accept higher inflation, you know, you, then you have a knock-on effect on bonds, on gold, on commodities in general. And so because they become very accommodative of higher inflation rates. So right now they do not want to do that, but that is the tough thing when you have a dual mandate.
1: So, so, I mean, on the on the recession, I mean, you know, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen. But there are now sort of differing opinions on, on a, you, know, a, you know, a bigger recession, a small one, maybe no recession based on kind of the indicators that you're seeing and where we're talking about inflation and interest rates. How are you sort of planning for this
2: year? Do you think there'll be a bigger recession or, or what are your thoughts on where that could end up? Yeah, I think uh, I really respect both Fidelity. Obviously, we're bottom up stock pickers. But more importantly, look at more like the probabilities of things happening. I think it's very dangerous when you say, Oh, for sure this is happening. I think people say that love to give headlines, they love to be in the news. But in, in reality, a lot of this is gray and it's 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 not black and white and it's probabilities. So I think you make a great point. Right now, there's a lot of talk of, of recession, but let's be very honest, the data right now is, you know, we are not we're not talking about recession. These job numbers are very robust. Consumer spending is generally decent. It is maybe getting a little slower, but it's still very positive. If we were in a recession, these stats would look a lot different, right? We would not be debating it. They would be definitive, okay? So right now, it seems like more just in terms of where we are in the calendar year and in the benefits we're still seeing in the job market in particular it's probably more the second half this year, you see slower economic growth. And really the bait now is, you can just see anemic growth, right? Again, everyone has to understand that a recession sometimes is just a little negative. It doesn't have to be, you know, the end of the world negative. And so the, the stats, the, the amount of um, wealth, the amount of cash and actually deposits in the banks with and the actual job market would point to, probably it's more anemic growth in a, in a shallow recession. But again, Let's be very honest. And this is for the audience, too. I think they can understand this. It's a very unique time. Normally, you don't have quantitative tightening and interest rates rising in the same period of time. Even the Fed will be honest with you. They're very data dependent. And so as we go through this year, that economic outlook can change quite drastically if they raise rates too fast. And this is the other debate, too, that some would say, is is the Fed raising too much because they were too late? and maybe they should pause a little bit and let the ramifications happen because usually when you have that much tightening, it does a delayed effect. And so they're, they're looking at data today, making decisions, but they might need to pause a little bit because the actual effects might take at least six months to actually go into the system. And people realizing, oh, my mortgage rate has gone up this much. This is how much it costs to finance my car. So right now it looks like more of a shallow recession as we go out, but again, the Fed, we, we must respect is the biggest driver where that could toggle one way or the other, right?
1: So you you, you know you you cover uh, the Canadian market and energy in particular. And um, last year, energy helped the Canadian market. Our market was down, but not nearly as much as the S and P five hundred. Where do you see energy going this year? What are some of the the forces or trends that you're looking at in uh, in the energy sector today?
2: Yeah, I think with. Uh Energy is again, supply, there's just not a real supply response. And again, it, we have to respect the CEOs of these energy companies, right? So what they're being told by their investors is don't grow. Give me dividends, give me buybacks, be a boring company. Uh, number two, they're being told by, you know, the, the governments themselves to regulate them that, you know, we don't really want you to grow. Like right now in Canada, if you were going to say we're going to build a new oil sands mine, that would be very, very, very difficult. The Canadian government, would be give you a lot of roadblocks to even have that happen. And number three, I think the boards themselves are questioning, you know, how much capital do we really want to put in here? There's so many uncertainties. And even just for Canada, one of the biggest uncertainties is carbon capture. The oil sands companies in Canada want to do carbon capture. It's a great spot to do it for McMurray. It's very aggregated together. Um, you can do carbon capture there. And they're essentially waiting on the Canadian government Uh, Provincial government as well to come together to say, you know, well, what is going to be the tax benefit to do this? Because if you do carbon capture facilities, it costs a lot of money. And right now they haven't got a definitive answer. And uh, it's really a big debate right now, too, because the U.S., with their new um, tax incentive for carbon capture, make it very attractive to do carbon capture in the States. And whereas here in Canada we haven't come up with a clear resolution. And so this is where it also becomes a, a debate that if we don't do something, we won't be as cost competitive. And maybe an oil and gas company, which many are, go across both borders, go, you know what, we're gonna invest in carbon capture in the States. And that would be, it'd be a negative for multiple reasons, for job growth, economic growth, but also lowering emissions. And so right now, I think the US government has been really more pragmatic about that, you know, if you're going to lower emissions, you probably have to work with the oil and gas companies. The Canadian government right now is is debating that. And if you watch closely, they've been very big on like green hydrogen or renewables, but not really benefiting anything that helps the Canadian oil and gas companies directly or indirectly. One would be carbon capture. But the the, the problem with that, if you want to lower emissions, you probably have to have them at least sitting at the table for a solution. So. We, I think you're gonna see some boring things going on with dividends and buybacks until we get more resolution on these issues.
1: Yeah, and that the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, that's where those big tax tax breaks are, are in. Do you think that the, the um, you know, will the Canadian government industry, will they have to keep up with that? Well, you, do you think they will have to match it in some way?
2: Well, I think the, the way the capital markets goes, it, it, will, it, it will find a solution if you don't wanna find a solution. What it means by that is that if you don't wanna give us the, the tax benefit, our neighbor does, well, we will move capital there, and you'll see the benefits or detriment of that. And so, I think I think the Canadian government will understand that. I think they've been pragmatic in the past about that. But that's, at this point in time, they're not moving as fast, definitely, as the U.S. And they have a they have a window here they have to execute on, or otherwise, capital will move to again the United States in particular.
1: Right. So um, on energy, uh, and specifically on oil prices, what are your thoughts on oil prices? What factors could affect it You know, going up or down?
2: Yeah, oil right now. So let's review what happened last year. So what happened last year is that obviously Ukraine crisis uh, in the beginning drove up the, the risk premium, I would say, in the oil price itself because people were worried about disruptions. As you went further in the year, oil came off. And what happened there was the risk premium was probably too high because Russia found other outlets, in particular China and India, probably unofficially and sometimes in public matters said, we will take your oil, whereas other countries said, we will not take the Russian oil. So they found outlets to not actually disrupt as much as maybe the market was expecting for oil, number one. Number two is China slowed down. And number three is the US Federal Reserve. Raising interest rates to a large degree slowed down. Global GDP has slowed down uh, commodities uh, as well. As we look out to this year, as you can see, let's review the big buckets. The Russian threat is still there. Let's just say that's neutral. But I would say there's probably a little more friction this year is that you get price caps are now being talked uh, being enacted uh, from certain countries. And then also when you talk about the other one was China, well, China now is opening up. And then the other one is Federal Reserve probably getting closer to actually uh, at least year over year, less of a negative headwind on the US Federal Reserve. And lastly, I would sum the other one up that was probably different since last time I talked to this group was the U.S. SPR, it is so strategic uh, petroleum reserve in the U.S. was dumping oil in the market, especially late last year. Now has actually come out and said publicly, oil prices near where we are, we will be buyers of oil. So a lot of these factors are changing for the better. We're not really seeing a supply response. So to sum it up, unless we have a, a major recession, you have a number of positives here um, for the oil price from where we are today. Great. Um,
1: another question, what sectors in the Canadian markets do you see opportunities in?
2: I think what sectors is, you know, we can talk about probably um, more idiosyncratic sectors. You know, consumer staples are still seeing a benefit. Some of the names would be like inflation in the, in the grocery space is benefiting. Grocers have a very small net margin. So any inflation... Uh, it was really beneficial to them. Number two would be the industrial space. Uh, our rails are still getting pricing. This is very important these days. It's still a very inflationary environment, as you know. And so come companies are getting, you know, the ability to pass long price and some are not. The rails are still seeing that. I'd say those are two probably areas of they're seeing some kind of benefits. And we can talk about some they're seeing some of the tailwinds as well or headwinds.
1: Um, I just went just on, on the on the sectors. I, I you had mentioned when we were talking a bit earlier, you had some uh, big meetings with some bank CEOs, and um, w- that was yesterday. So, what are bank CEOs saying, and uh, what are you hearing from both? And you're meeting with energy sector CEOs as well from from both of those groups.
2: Yeah, this is uh, again. We as PMs and analysts, we really appreciate and are humbled. We've been working at Philly. I mean, this January alone, I think we'll meet with uh, six. I would say at all at least 30, 40 uh, different CEOs, just the Canadian companies alone. We saw all the global CEOs uh, in a conference last week, the global, the, the the Canadian bank CEOs I met with personally with our team yesterday, the head of OSFI, which regulates the banks, was yesterday as well, the conference and lots of other companies are coming up in conferences or in-house. But so the banks, it, that's when when I would say one of the sectors is seeing uh, headwinds. And so if we look back, what are banks essentially or bank stocks? Bank stocks do well because they're a play on the economy, essentially a leverage play on the economy. The economy is doing well, we're spending more on our credit cards, we're buying bigger homes. Companies are spending more on hiring or capital expenditures, they need financing. So the equity debt markets are benefiting and the banks will benefit from this. They have their hands in everything, right? So that definitely was a good time the last few years. When we fast forward today, higher rates is choking a lot of this off, right? So higher rates, obviously housing activity has fallen, The spending, as you're seeing it, it's still positive because people have jobs, but that's coming off a little bit. Capital markets and debt markets, the activity is very, very quiet. There's not too many companies doing any kind of like bot deals or equity financing or even debt financing. Very, very quiet. And if anything, the banks right now are probably you're seeing in the U.S. first starting to to cut people or staff. So that's a sign that already the banks are seeing some revenue pressures. Uh, we'll bring up uh, housing just because it's a question I think we have to watch is that, you know, in the Canada in particular, we have five-year mortgages. And this is one of the issues that, you know, you, we have to be sympathetic to the average Canadian. Many of them have mortgages and some are variable and some are fixed and variable rates. There's been a huge move up that the average consumer is not used to and their costs are boring. And with a five-year mortgage, well, a certain percentage of those roll off every year and you have to. Essentially, look at a new and higher interest rate and you have to make adjustments somewhere in your life, right? Your probably income didn't jump that much. So you have to lower spending somewhere else. And so for the banks right now, though, if I was to sum it up, we look at banks as investors. We say, is this a balance sheet issue or income statement issue? Balance sheet issue is bad. Balance sheet issue means there's a lot of bad loans and like they might need to raise equity. And you don't know what the book value is. We're not there. Right now, we're at more of an income state issue. An income state issue means the revenue growth and thus earnings growth has headwinds. And so probably you're more of anemic growth going forward. Um, again, some of that is already priced in with nine times earnings, but we have to respect that these banks are seeing headwinds.
1: And, and you had, I, I, one of the conversations you had was about uh, capital requirements related to the energy sector, which I thought was interesting. And I haven't sort of seen this before. Um, so there may be some breaking news here. I don't know, but um, tell me about those conversations.
2: No, no, no breaking news here. Sorry. But, but what I'll say is I'll reiterate what, what um, uh, Brian's mentioning is, is OSFI, which regulates obviously the banks, has been talking publicly saying, you know, one of the things we're debating internally is like, how do we um, look at climate risk? And so this is a really interesting debate that has been brought up. And, and Candace is one of many regulators, especially in Europe, is looking at, OK, if we're going to regulate the banks, do we take a... a You know, a a rifle approach or shotgun approach essentially to that risk. And so, what we mean by that is that we could essentially say, well, as Canadian banks, uh, we have more exposure to the energy sector and and just in general versus other countries. So, our, you know, capital ratio should be higher. It's a shotgun approach. Or do we do a rifle approach and say, if you lend to oil and gas companies, you'll have a higher risk weighting on that capital when we do your ratios? And so, or we may do none of this, right? We may all, you know, this is a debate. And so this is where I went back to why there's a supply issue right now is we're definitely seeing this in Europe and it's slowly coming into North America. The oil and gas companies are seeing their, their bank syndicates not wanting to lend to them as much. Or if they do, they're demanding a little higher cost, right? Well, all that eats into, well, maybe won't spend as much. Maybe won't explore as much. And so the OSFI, which regulates the, the, the banks, as I said, is looking to this, this issue and, and wants to come up with something maybe this year. But I think it's a very, you know, it's a very big uh, subject matter. And, and hopefully they do it correctly because there's a huge knock on effect, obviously, even provincially. If you really want to harm the oil and gas industry, you know, there's a knock on effect to economic growth in certain provinces we have. And so they're they're sympathetic to this and they're debating it. But it's something I know even the bank CEOs are watching because it would change their behavior as well. Um,
1: uh, just about expectations on earnings. Where, where do you expect those to go?
2: Oh, it's a great question. I think this is one of the toughest things is that, you know, I think Urien Timmer does a great job on these shows talking about it. He has some great graphs. Last year, it was all about the P, okay? The, the, when you look at the PE, the price has corrected a large degree. When you look at earnings growth this year, it's hardly moved, right? You know, it's it's, it's almost like, It knows it should move down, but it doesn't know where, and this is often what the sell side does. They're not gonna move until they see more clarity. This earnings season next 30 to 45 days is very important. Companies are gonna come out with actual reporting. Again, these are men and women, CFOs, CEOs, who you kind of forget, but like they look at things in yearly basis, right? Last year, they were still worried about probably hiring people early last year, making sure they have good supply chains. This year is a totally different. It's a new leaf. Now they look out and go, you know what? Maybe we're not going to spend as much on, you know, these things like travel or maybe we're not going to hire as many people as we were going to before because we're seeing revenue headwinds. And so I would not be surprised the earnings revisions will probably be more likely negative than they are positive at this point in time. It's the magnitude is the key thing is that this is a tough thing for the average investor. Often the market will bottom before the earnings actually bottom, right? We've seen this in past cycles. So we could see a scenario as we play out this year. Earnings revisions happen, and the market bottoms and actually moves up. Even with those revisions happening, it's because the price has already corrected a large degree. And really, we're now trying to find it's the market's calibrating. Have does the price move down enough for the earnings? The earnings that we see on the screen or the Bloomberg screen or consensus on on the on the margin is probably a little too high for some of these companies. But has it already priced in even a lower number? And thus, you could see a higher market further out. So so given, you know, we've talked
1: a lot of, who knows where things are going to go? You never know, but it feels, you know, uncertain uh, going into 2023. As a, as a portfolio manager, how do you deal with that volatility, that uncertainty? What is your approach to looking at the market?
2: I think you, you look at a few big things. Number one is, is debt. You have to really scrub the portfolio the last probably years, two years, making sure that like people are really complacent about debt, that you don't want to have companies that themselves are complacent having high leverage and that their model can work with higher interest rates. I think number two, you actually look at where you could get a benefit, where there's pain, there's someone else's gain. And some of these companies that were, you know, for a long time, had great balance sheets, they weren't being rewarded. They were going to the M&A market. They couldn't buy anything because private equity was bidding it up. Um, Now we're saying, well, I have a great balance sheet. I have cash. And these private equity players I used to compete with have a higher cost of debt than they used to. Maybe I can gain somewhere there. So there's definitely gonna be some more acquis- acquisitive companies. And lastly, is just summing up, you know, we look at probabilities and we, at the end of the day, if you have great companies with great brands and offer a great service, usually no matter the macro environment, they're gonna gain share and they're gonna be better and bigger companies coming out of this. And really, time is to your advantage. And so, as opposed to going, oh, certainly the, the recession will happen here, it'll be this magnitude. It's more just looking at, okay, There'll be tougher times ahead, but if we had the best of breed, high quality companies, we'll come out on top. So it's really
1: kind of, I mean, it's always, I guess, focused on the fundamentals, but feels like a bit more back to basics, a bit more focused on what really matters to make sure that you're you're getting a good company.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think it's just reviewing with the 400 investment professionals around Fidelity, talking to them, what are the best ideas? Again, lots of CEO meetings. I think- you know, especially in downtimes, I do know for sure. We talk to CEOs more than more than normal. Uh, I would say our our, our meeting schedules usually fill up, and so in good times, we probably have one or two CEO meetings an hour globally. And then when when the market's good, tougher usually that number goes higher. So. We're just gonna keep turning over rocks and there's always gonna be some great ideas that come out of this. Great, Uh,
1: Joe, we will end it there, we're we're at time. Thank you so much for this. Uh, I'm sure we'll chat again, looking forward to see how 2023 unfolds. Happy new year and thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for your time and and, I hope everyone has a great year.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.